This podcast is brought to you by BrunerAcademy.com, your online resource for the best public speaking, presentation, storytelling skills courses. Become a rock star communicator in any setting. Visit BrunerAcademy.com. Cocaine, acid, Oxycontin, crystal meth. For more than 15 years, my guest was high on all of them at one time or another all the while playing college and professional basketball in the NBA and overseas. He was a basketball phenom and a drug addict who threw away his career and almost his life. Chris Heron is now sober and is making a positive difference in millions of people's lives. Chris, welcome to my podcast. Great to see you again. Great to see you as well. Thank you for having me on. I know that you are doing really well. So how many years sober are you now? So I'll celebrate 14 years sober, August 1st. Ah, congratulations. Yeah. We were just talking before we began recording that you and I met 13 years ago when you were only sober for about a year when I had the chance to do a story with you when I was still a TV journalist. And I reread your book, Basketball Junkie, that you worked on with Bill Reynolds. I read it over the weekend. And it still blows my mind, Chris that you are alive today. Clearly, you are meant to be here. You have a purpose. Do you feel that way too? I do, but, but I also did a lot of work. I think that needs to be discussed when it comes to recovery. Oftentimes, it just doesn't happen. It requires a lot of work. I tell people all the time who are newly sober to kind of settle in and get comfortable with the monotony because to be good at anything, you gotta do it over and over and over again. As a former athlete, I know, you know what it took to become good at the game of basketball. I approach recovery pretty much the same way. Mm -hmm. And I think it's such a key word, recovery, and the work that goes into staying a recovering addict. There's so much work that goes into it. You shot heroin for eight years. You did coke for 15 years. And you even write about the fact that you needed those drugs to function. So how and why did this drug habit even start? You know, I think, again, I think when you talk about drugs and alcohol, I think there's so much emphasis on the worst day and we forget the first day. Yeah. We want to show our children. We want to talk to our friends about the end rather than understanding their beginning. And for me, I think it began, you know, by drinking my dad's Miller Lights, right? Mm -hmm. My dad is a former politician struggles with alcoholism. At a very young age, I knew that alcohol was having a negative impact on my family. I hated beer as a boy because I understood what it was doing to my mom. And sadly, I started drinking it as a boy. Mm, yeah. And that was the first major red flag that went up in my life. And I had no understanding of addiction. I had no understanding of the genetic component to this. And I didn't know how to cope in a lot of ways with things that were happening internally in my house as a teenager. Nobody starts off on heroin, right? I started at a young age and it progressed to a place that I never wanted to be. Yeah. You would write about the fact that no one starts out thinking they're going to become an addict, regardless of whether yeah. there's genetics involved in your family or not. Mm. I do want to go back in time because you talked about your father a moment ago. And he was a basketball player. Your grandfather was a basketball player. Your brother, Michael, was a basketball player. This was a family thing. And yet you really never, ever wanted to play the game. 
but they were all stars at Durfee High in Fall River, Massachusetts. And you were expected to play. And not only play, you were expected to win. And that was almost more important than your academics. And that, to me, sounds like so much pressure. Did that contribute to that first drink of that Miller Lite? It all contributed to the struggle internally, emotionally, Mm -hmm. as a teenager. You know, some people look at being recruited as this honor, like, you know, you've earned it and, and it's an honor. And I talk to adults, if, if your boss, you know, stood over your shoulder and critiqued you all day long, it's high stress, it's high pressure. It was something that I didn't know how to deal with. I didn't know how to really vocalize some of the struggle that I was going through. Being an athlete under an immense amount of pressure definitely contributed to my escape. Mm-hmm. My mom, she passed away when she was 50. I never had an opportunity to discuss some of this stuff with her. But I would love to ask my mom, you know, when I was 16 years old, playing at Durfee High School, under the lights, in front of 4,000 people, how come nobody grabbed me and said, you're so good at this, why do you struggle with that? And how can you play basketball in front of 4,000 people, but two hours later on a Friday night, you can't hang out? with four kids you've known your whole life. And those are questions that need to be asked to our children because that's what the beginning looks like. More pressure came as a basketball player because you had a lot of success in AAU basketball. And you talked about the recruiting that was going on. You had coaches from Syracuse, Villanova, Seton Hall, Florida, Wisconsin, Providence, UMass, and Boston College, all of them coming after you. And you were even called at that time the best white guard since Jerry West. Mm -hmm. And you chose BC even though you didn't really want to go there. Your brother went there. That didn't work out so well. And it sounds like you did a lot of things that unconsciously or consciously were self-destructive. You got expelled. You were failed drug tests, missed classes. When you look back at that time, Was that just more of that pressure and that was the escape that you talked about? You know, I think the injury at BC played a big, big factor. So my first game at Boston College, I broke my wrist. I went into surgery immediately after. It was kind of the first time in my life that the structure was pulled away from me. The accountability of of being somewhere every day, multiple times a day, I lost that. And again, there's a lot of kids that can manage that. Unfortunately, I wasn't one of them. In hindsight... I probably would have benefited from going to a prep school for a year Mm -hmm. to just kind of learn how to live with a little bit of freedom away from my home, away from my friends. It was not healthy for me by any stretch. Well, you also say that you really didn't even like school. And then you don't have that structure of how to study, when you should study, how to stay in class and all those things. I can't even imagine how, you know, between that injury that you got and then you're being sucked into this, you know, this drug world of, of doing more drugs. All of that, to me, just feels like so self-destructive, whether you knew you were doing it or not. Do you feel that you knew you were doing this to yourself, that it was self-destructive? Yeah. Academics were very important to my family. My brother would have gotten to BC without a scholarship. My dad was a career politician, and my mom had my brother when she was 17, and mm created this unbelievably successful life for herself before cancer took her life. I wasn't into school. 
Yeah, that was uh. that, that was something that I it was it was probably another form of escapism. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't want to I don't want to make myself vulnerable enough to fail. Mm, interesting. Going to BC is you know BC is a different level. You know I knew it was a problem when I found myself playing wiffle ball in the mods with seniors. <laughs> you know one of the most embarrassing things of, of my childhood and my collegiate years is the lack of dedication, motivation to excel in the classroom because mm-hmm. I had all the tools to do it. I just made a decision that it wasn't it wasn't for me. You end up getting expelled and you do finally get a second chance at Fresno State. And again, the drugs kind of played a factor into that as well. You kind of blow that opportunity and you finally enter rehab. And you were very public about that decision. And you even write about the fact that you felt all right for a while, but once you went out, it was over. Recovery's not easy. You know, never mind that 21. Yeah. You know, there's not a medical professional that would make a recommendation for a kid who's struggling with dependency to go navigate a college campus. As I sit here with you today, I'm at my wellness center in Seekonk, and I probably have 10 college kids here currently, ranging from Trinity to Amherst to Bates. We're very aware of what they have to face when their illness is put back onto a college campus. Recovery, it's not final, it's beautiful. When I was 21 years old, I said to myself, I can never drink again, instead of saying, thank God I never have to drink again. That's a huge difference there, Chris. That's so important. It is, and I take great pride in the fact that I can be in social settings, I can walk into weddings, I can dance with my wife, I don't have to change myself in order to feel like I'm fitting into it. Mm -hmm. That was something at 21 years old, it wasn't conveyed to me. It was like, almost like a punishment that I had to enter this world of, of sobriety instead of looking at it from the perspective that I have this unbelievable gift that I don't have to. When it comes to recovering, You felt that you could stop doing the drugs at any point in time, which I think a lot of people who do use drugs say to themselves, I can stop anytime I want. I can Mm. stop. And yet you're you're willing to risk everything just to get high. Can you explain why there's that feeling of, yeah, I can stop. I, I don't need to do this. I can stop. I knew at 18 when I was did my first line of cocaine that I was taking a chance at dying. It's really that simple. Unfortunately, people, they don't look at it that way. Like nobody grabbed me and said, Christopher, why are you willing to put that up your nose when you you might die from it? You got this college kid who's partying, he's a mess, he has no self-control, he has no boundaries. Instead of really looking at why I was willing to self-destruct and why I got to the point where I was willing to lose my life for it. I say this to families and it's tough for them to hear about their loved one. From the age of 18 to 32, I took a chance at dying every day. Every single day I walked out of my house and I knew in the back of my head that I might not be back. That's how people need to approach and look at, you know, addiction. I'm going to jump ahead now to 1999 and you're, you're married to your childhood sweetheart, Heather. Mm -hmm. 
You're a new father. You're auditioning for the NBA. You get picked in the 33rd round of the draft by the Denver Nuggets. And then the following year, you're named to the Boston Celtics. This has been a lifelong dream. And yet, you're already hooked on OxyContin. And you're meeting drug dealers in your Celtics warm-ups minutes before you hit the court. I mean, this is six years out of high school. This is your dream team, and yet you still continued. Again, you knew you were potentially killing yourself. For me, that's a very normal thing to do. When people are completely shocked when they hear that I was outside the arena in my warm-ups before the game, that is a completely normal thing to do in the world that I was living in. That's the level of addiction that I was facing because there was no playing unless I had that substance in me. There's teachers that drink before teaching. There's newscasters that have too many pops before they go on air. There's people at ESPN that hang out in the lounge before they go on TV and have a couple of drinks. The world I lived in, I could not Mm -hmm. function unless my body had opiates. Whether it was being outside the Boston Garden or shipping them all over the country, So at every Ritz-Carlton, every Four Seasons I arrived in, there would be a package waiting for me. As awful as it was, as hard of a life as it became, it was a very normal thing to do. And not only in the United States. I mean, you end up playing in five different countries, in Italy, Poland, Turkey, China, and even Iran. And and you even Mm -hmm. say, you write in your book, that you were a professional basketball player two hours out of the day and a professional addict for the other 22 hours in a day. There's so much shame attached to addiction that you work so hard to not be exposed and let the people who love you know how sick you are. And I worked really hard, not only to get it, but I worked really hard to hide it. That's why I try to explain to families when they feel blindsided or they feel like, how did I miss it? Because mm. we work really hard to keep it from you. We work really hard so you don't have to deal with it. We're not exposed and we don't have to face what we're going through. Yeah, 22 hours a day, whether it was in a foreign country or when I was playing for the Celtics, I never wanted my wife to know how bad mm. off I was. But she did know on many levels. Well, she found out. Yeah, she found out. When you open up a bank statement, that's the tragedy. There's so much shame attached to it and the sickness becomes so, you become so ill Mm -hmm. that you don't want to tell anybody and you're dreading the day that they find out. I knew when I took off to go play in Turkey and my wife didn't come with me and didn't come with the kids, that there would be a day that she was going to open up the financial statements in the mail and see the devastation, the destruction right on a piece of paper because of the finances that, you know, my addiction took from us. Yeah. Heroin. Mm -hmm. You've said that once you use the needle, you cross the line. Mm -hmm. When did that day happen for you? You know, you start off by letting somebody do it to you. Mm. You give your wrist, then you take it over. And I was scared of needles. I was afraid. You know, I was 20 years old, still looking the other way when they gave me shots. That's the cunning nature of Mm -hmm. of addiction and the baffling nature of addiction that I went from being afraid of it to doing it to myself anywhere between one and 
eight times a day. Wow. Your basketball career ends, and there are really two incidences that kind of were the end. The EMTs found you passed out in a drive through at Dunkin' Donuts, and then you also crashed your car into a utility pole, and, and they said you were dead. You were dead for 30 seconds. Yeah. And you talk about being in the ER and trying to think of ways to kill yourself because you felt there was no hope. I would imagine, and I don't know this to be true, but is that how most addicts feel that at times there's just no hope? Why, why even live? Oh, gosh, yeah. The stigma to addiction is that there's never a comeback. Mm. Life is over. Once you've crossed the line to crack cocaine, to heroin, there is no redemption. Right. That's the furthest thing from the truth. And we've done such a horrible job at showing that, that there are people who have crossed that line and there are people that have been that sick. They've gone on to live very successful, healthy lives. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to die because I didn't want my kids to have to deal with it anymore. Mm -hmm. I didn't want my wife to have to hear the news of, oh, your husband overdosed. And that's what addiction does, not only to me, but it did it to my family. Yeah. It isolates you. It opens you up to extreme vulnerability. It attacks your self-esteem and it attacks your self-worth. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to continue to do that to my family. You know, I was sitting in that hospital and I was 32. It wasn't the first time it happened to me. and. Doctors and nurses don't pay much attention to people like me. Let's check the box. We have another overdose coming in and let the police handle it and let them go to jail. In the state of Massachusetts, if someone comes in and they've attempted suicide or they even vocalized that they were going to commit suicide, the medical professionals involved have to hold them for 72 hours. But an addict who puts the needle in his arm or her arm is brought back to life by Narcan, is brought into an emergency room, and there's no hold. Hmm. That's what addiction looks like as far as the perception of other people, and especially in the medical world. Yeah. Thankfully, you find Daytop, and you had a rock-bottom moment there where you really faced your truth, and you mentioned your kids a moment ago. What happened that made you finally hit rock-bottom and know that you were going to turn your life around? I was in Daytop for about a month. Heather was giving birth to Drew, and she was Mm -hmm. by herself. You know, addiction had pulled her family away from her. I think it embarrassed some of her friends. There's so much shame attached to it that people don't really know how to respond appropriately. I thought at 35 days sober that I was going to get a chance at being in the hospital with my wife, giving birth, and I would handle it. And I didn't. I drank that day. And the next day I walked into the hospital and my wife looked at me and she was just like, you got to go. She looked at me and she said that I broke her heart a million times, but now I was breaking my kids. And my kids had become old enough that glimpses of sobriety gave them an extreme amount of hope. When you lose that recovery, they lose hope. I kept giving it to them and pulling it away. You're either going to be the dad that they deserve and the dad that they need, or you need to walk away and let go. Well, happily, you are still with Heather. You are sober for 14 years, as you mentioned. You are an author, you're a wellness advocate, a public speaker, and you have been sharing your story of recovery 
to millions of people and having profound connections, in particular with young people. What is your main message to your audiences, Chris? I think it varies. It's who I'm in front of. Mm -hmm. What I've learned about public speaking is every audience is different. It requires doing your homework because every community is going through something different. When it comes to children, it's all about the first day. When moms and dads catch their little girl drinking on a Friday night, the first question they ask them is, who are you with? And they want to find out who gave it to them and how much they did. Very few parents ask why. Is that the key question? Is that what they should be asking? Yes, yes, of course. Why does my little girl have to change herself to function with kids that she's been spending time with, growing up with? Why do you have to change yourself? That's a critical thing to this. A lot of parents don't ask it. Such an important lesson. You mentioned the first day again, and I know that there's a film that's titled The First Day. And it really is that important thing of the why. Why do you even start on that very first day? How'd that film come about? When I did Unguarded, I did that for the sole purpose of reaching people who were either struggling with addiction or people who were in recovery. I didn't think that Unguarded was a film that would speak to students because I would walk into schools all across the country. I would tell the Unguarded story. Kids appreciated it and they would email me and they would message me and say, I really, really respect your vulnerability. I hope your family and you can continue in your recovery. But I got very little about them. Mm. And I wanted to be more impactful. I wanted to change it. You know, Gail King, Charlie Rose, I got a phone call. They asked me to do an exercise called Note to Self. I did that Note to Self on the morning show. Writing that note to myself was so difficult, so emotional, so gut-wrenching that I realized after I got to talk about my beginning when I'm in front of children. That's where we've gotten the most response. Mm, amazing. You've talked about your kids and now that they have hope and they can look up to you. And sadly, our Celtics, Boston Celtics, did not bring home banner number 18 recently. But you took your son to a game and mm -hmm. you finally felt that pride of having been on the Celtics team. What was that moment like for you? You know, it's a lesson in humility and vulnerability. I was extremely embarrassed about the opportunity I lost. I was the guy who lived out every child's dream in, in New England, and it didn't last. Mm -hmm. Coming up on 14 years sober, I'm so grateful that I worked so hard to become a professional because ultimately it gave me a voice. Mm -hmm. It gave me a platform to do what I've done over the last 12 years. Although the Celtics lasted a year, I'm very, very, very grateful for that year. Without that, I wouldn't be here. What does living your best life mean to you today, Chris? Just one day at a time. And I love it. We can win days. The recovery side to it is, if I can win today, then August 1st, 2008 is one day further away from my children's memory. If I can build off the bad days, before recovery, if I can create space, in that space we heal, in that space we forgive, in that space we grow, that's what's happened. 
For those of you listening, if you would like to learn more about Chris, I encourage you, I invite you, please go to his website, chrisherrentalks.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-E-R-R-E-N talks.com. And read his book. It's called Basketball Junkie, and it is very, very powerful. Chris, you have shined a light today on recovery. You've shined a light today on the mission that you're on and that you are making such a difference in so many people's lives. I'm grateful to have this opportunity with you once again today. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for having me on. And to those of you listening, if you know anyone who is struggling with a drug addiction, please reach out to their many sources available. Reach out to Chris and know that you can find hope and new life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.